Hey, it's great to be with you tonight. I'm Chuck Lee, Master with Team Faith. We'll go ahead, we'll open this up with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig right into it and try and talk fast so we can go back to our warm campers. <laughs> Lord, thanks a lot. We love you, and uh, we love that we have freedom in Christ, that we are not bound to a religion where we have to go to a certain building on a certain day and do a certain thing and say certain things. We have the freedom to come out here and enjoy what you put in our hearts to do. And we love racing, but Lord, my heart, my passion is that I love you more than I love racing and love anything else in this world. So would you just uh, speak through me tonight and just help me to communicate your truth to the people that are here. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll tell you what, it is a... uh, it's a crazy time in our country, and I try really hard to not be too political because when you mention politics in today's age, it's like there's no middle. It's you're either way out here, or you're way out here, and we have no common ground. And it's getting harder and harder to not address politics. And as I was praying this week about God, what do you want me to preach? What's relevant? What matters? It always comes back to what's relevant and what matters in my own life. And so that's a lot of times just where I have to go. And so this week, as I was praying about it, I came across, I'm I'm surfing on Facebook. You know, it's it's a total time killer. Can it be? I mean, if you're surfing social media, you can kill a lot of time. But if you use it responsibly, it can actually be entertaining, get to keep up with people. But on social media this week, on Facebook, I had a, uh, or last week, whenever it was, I had a friend. And I know she's a Christian friend, sold-out Christian friend, but she posted something on Facebook that just caught me the wrong way. And I've seen it several times. I've seen this thing passed around several times uh, because it's such a political age these days. But when she said it, it just it just struck me wrong. And her post was she had reposted this thing that um, heaven has a wall, a gate, and a strict immigration policy. Hell has open borders. Think about it. And I did think about it. I was like, you know, technically she's right, but man, this this saying it that way just doesn't invite people to come and see your side of the story. Saying it that way actually does the opposite. It's kind of like beating people over the head. I'm right, you're wrong, end of story. And by the way, I got a Bible and I'll clobber you upside the head with it if I want to. So, you know, putting all things in context, because that's always very, very important to me. Uh, it's always been important to put things in context Heaven has a, a wall and a gate and all that. Actually, that's true. Revelation chapter 21. If you want to read probably the two most inspiring chapters in the entire Bible, go to the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. It's Every time I read, it is just so awesome because John the Apostle, late in his life, they actually tried to kill him. Legend tells us that they tried to kill him by pouring boiling oil over top of him, and that didn't do the trick, so they exiled him to Patmos. Like, okay, you'll live on this island in total seclusion. While he's on this island, he has a vision, and an angel says, write down what you see. And so that's what the whole book of Revelation is, is John writing down exactly what he sees. You get to chapter 21, and John writes down, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And he starts to describe this new Jerusalem, and it just kind of, every time I read it, I'm telling you, it just gives me, it gives me chills. It's just, it's, it's so powerful. And he describes it. 
about how the dwelling place of God is with man. And then he gets to this point in verse 12. He says, and this new Jerusalem, is that is that heaven? Is it, There's a new heaven, there's a new new earth. I'm not really sure if new Jerusalem's the heaven or if it's the new city. Whatever, whatever John is seeing, he's describing. He says, here's how it goes. It says that it had a great high wall with 12 gates. So indeed, wall, 12 gates. These 12 gates, they all had names. Names ascribed to the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 foundations of the, of the wall were the names of the apostles. And, and then it says, uh, the city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. He goes on to say that it's as, as tall as it is high. And the angel had a measuring tape. And they measured it. And it was 12,000 stadia, which translated to today's terms as almost 1,400 miles. So this city... It's 1,400 miles. It takes from Houston, Texas, all the way up almost to the Canadian border. So it's as wide as the United States is tall. And its, it's width is that same way. And its height, it's a cube. Is that, so it's this enormous, massive, beautiful, amazing city. And then John says that the city has no need of a sun or moon because God is, is, is there in the city and the glory of God gives it its light. By its light, the nations will walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. <laughs> so, okay, you want to think about something. Its gates will never be shut by day and there's no night. Its gates will never be shut. So what is the point of a wall if its gates are never shut? talk about an immigration policy i think it's see i think it's extremely important for us to put context to the bible matter of fact i think it's i think we need to be very very careful about making the bible fit our agenda it actually should be the other way around our agenda should fit the bible and so that's kind of where i want to go tonight uh it's hard to do because politics is everywhere. You just can't, you can't escape from it. And even if you want to be neutral, it seems like everybody has an opinion. Somebody pointed out uh, not too long ago that once upon a time there was this guy who would get on the evening news and he would read the news to you. His name was Walter Conkite. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, welcome to church. <laughs> can't get very far in mud like this, you know. Uh, man, I've been there myself many times. We'll, we'll get a dozer out here and get him unstuck. Weren't we dealing with this last week, too? Man, it's been a rainy season. Anyway, Walter Conkite would read the news to you. Now, nowadays, we've got, I think, six full-time news stations. Nobody tells you the news, though. They all tell you an opinion. They tell you what you're supposed to think of it. And if you don't agree with that opinion, you're wrong. That's it. You're just you're just wrong. You're le- you're left out in the middle there. And I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure that that's how it's supposed to really work because that attitude is spilling over into our interpersonal relationships, our relationships that we have with each other, our relationships with our families and our friends. It seems like those attitudes are kind of are are, are making. We're about to have Thanksgiving next week. It seems like for some families, many families, it's going to make the turkey taste a little bit drier than it normally is. And uh, and it's not supposed to be that way. And so we know that uh, we know that that's not how it's supposed to work. But I care. I care very, very passionately about this country. I very care very passionately about the direction that this country is moving into. And I believe that America has been an influence for good. I mean, when you look through just the last century, the Industrial Revolution, and then World War II, putting an end to the axis of evil and defeating Nazi and Hitler and all that, America was a, a very powerful force for good. Here recently. America introduced the world to the iPhone. I mean, it's good. 
technology has been good and a lot of that has, has been developed right out of the United States. So I care very passionately about my country, but I'm very concerned for the direction that we're going because how we speak up really matters. By all means, I believe that Christians should, should engage in truth and we should meet truth head on and we should meet untruths head on. But the way that we do it really matters. And so that's the direction that I want to go tonight. I want to, I want to provide some perspective. And in order to do that, I want to go back a little over 2,000 years ago. Go back to 63 A.D. 63 A.D. is when Pompey marched into a little tiny place about 6,000 miles away from here, a place called Jerusalem. Pompey marches in and he defeats Jerusalem. He's part of the, the first triumvirate with Julius Caesar. So Julius Caesar is the, is the law of the land. He is the emperor of Rome. Now, in high school class, in literature class, I literally fell asleep a lot. And my teacher even took pictures of me sleeping in her class. Somehow I managed to pull off an A, but it's just because I got by on the skin of my teeth. And as long as I got good grades, I guess she let me sleep in her class. But I did not know that Julius Caesar was a real person until I was an adult. I know that's kind of embarrassing, but Julius Caesar was an actual person. He was an emperor in Rome in 63 AD when Pompey defeated Jerusalem. Now, to, to, now to, to back things up here, we need to we need to put Jerusalem in context because that's what we're very concerned about is context. So let's go back a couple thousand years before that, before Pompey conquers Jerusalem. We go all the way back to when God comes to Abraham. God comes to Abraham says, Abraham. This whole world doesn't know who I am. I created it for my glory, and my desire was to have a relationship with mankind, but it's not working out that way. So, Abraham, through you, I'm going to do a great thing. I'm going to make of you a great nation with people. You're going to have your own land. Through you, the whole world's going to be blessed. So Abraham had a son who had two sons who had 12 sons. Before they were the 12 tribes of Israel, they were just a little tiny family, about 80 people, and there was a famine in the land. So they went to Egypt because there was food in Egypt. And the whole story of Joseph and how God used Joseph to provide food for that for Israel's family. Fast forward 400 years. Oh, man, you're all good. At least you're not stuck. And so in Egypt, they're enslaved because the Egyptians says, man, these guys are so many. We should make them our servants before they make us our, their servants. So they're enslaved, and God raises up Moses. Moses leads them out through the Red Sea into the wilderness. Forty years later, Joshua takes them across the river, and they conquer the Promised Land. King David expands the territory so that it's this big, beautiful place. It's a wonderful land, but it doesn't stay that way. Because then, just another generation down the road, under Rehoboam, the kingdom splits, and the people forget all about God, and there's this up-and-down seesaw thing. And God sends prophets and says, hey... God wants to get your attention because he wants to use you to influence the entire world. But if you're not going to pay attention, he's going to get your attention. You're going to go into captivity. Nobody listens. And what happens? Sure enough, Nebuchadnezzar marches in and lays siege to Jerusalem and takes out all the, all the bright people, all the, all the smart people, all the rich people, all the pretty people. I'd have been safe. But he takes them all into captivity over in Babylon. And he leaves just, just the remnant there in Israel. And Israel is no more. They're all in captivity. But then Babylon falls to Assyria. And then Assyria falls to the Persians. And the Persians say, okay, hey, we're going to send some of you back there into your homeland. And you can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah, and the Old Testament books in the Bible. Ezra and Nehemiah talk all about that remnant coming back into Jerusalem and building up the walls, rebuilding the temple. And we're starting to see a spark here. But then Persia falls to Alexander the Great of Greece. You heard about that in here history class in high school about Alexander the Great. And then after Alexander the Great, his kingdom falls into four different ways. 
And finally, there's Rome. And Rome comes in. And that's kind of where we're starting our stories, is how Rome comes in. And Julius Caesar uh, and, and uh, Pompey, they conquer Jerusalem. Julius Caesar dies in 44 B.C. Now, you remember that Shakespeare guy from literature class, right? Because he's, he's the guy that wrote all those... I thought Shakespeare was the guy that invented the fishing pole because you got Shakespeare rods and reels, right? No, Shakespeare was the guy that wrote all those wimpy plays that you had to read in high school. Julius Caesar was one of them. At Tu Brute, you remember that? About Julius Caesar being assassinated? Julius Caesar was actually assassinated. It wasn't just Brutus that assassinated him. It was the whole Senate. Everybody was stabbing Julius Caesar, and he dies. And so there's this starting, the starting of a rebellion there, but Julius Caesar's successor was a kid named, uh, uh, before he was, Octavian. Octavian became the next Caesar or emperor or whatever. It was, uh, it was January 1st, 42 BC. So two years after Caesar, Julius Caesar was assassinated. January 1st, the Senate, after Octavian had reorganized the whole Senate, got everything under control, the Senate voted that Julius Caesar is a deity. Julius Caesar is a god. He was a god. They had games in Julius Caesar's honor, like kind of like the gladiator games. They had those kind of games going on. And a comet struck across the sky, and everybody took that as a sign that Julius Caesar was a god. And therefore, Octavian, his successor, was known as, get this, known as Son of God. The Roman Senate voted to change Octavian's name to Augustus, which means majestic. You've heard of Augustus, because every year at Christmas time, you watch a Charlie Brown Christmas, right? And Linus gets up there with his blanket, and he says, he says, here's the real Christmas story, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That's the Caesar Augustus. Okay, now get this. Something else about Caesar Augustus. Caesar the Majestic, Caesar the Great, Caesar the Son of God instituted what we call today Pax Romana. Roman peace is what it's called. He said, hey, instead of conquering the world through bloodshed, let's conquer through peace. Let's institute peace, and and people are going to see how great Rome is, and they're going to want to be part of Rome. It didn't exactly work out that way, but for the next 200 years, Pax Romana was in effect. Roman peace. And so, Caesar Augustus became known as the savior of Rome. Because he was promoting and heralding peace. And everywhere that Pax Romana was discussed, it was heralded as good news. Does anybody know what the gospel is? Good news. The gospel, according to the Savior of Rome, the Son of God, Caesar Augustus, is all about me. And this, this is what was happening in 0 A.D., or 0 B.C., when Jesus was born. Remember the angels, as, as Linus is telling the story, the Christmas story, the angels come, and, and the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there's a great multitude, and they're singing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with those who found his favor. Those are all the words that were happening in the condition when Jesus, the Son of God, capital 
S O N of capital G God. That's what has happened. That's what the that's what Jesus was born into. That was the world that Jesus was born into. The very creator of the universe, God in a bod. <coughs> that's what he came into from heaven to earth. He's the real deal. The real deal is stepping into a facade. A bunch of men saying, Well, that guy's God. That guy's the son of God. That guy's the savior. And then the real one comes down to this earth and steps into that climate. You talk about political time. You talk about a political age. We think we have it bad, but look at what Jesus was born into. Interestingly enough, uh, Caesar Augustus dies in AD 14. So when Jesus is a teenager, Caesar dies. There's a new Caesar that comes along. His name is Tiberius. You've actually heard of Tiberius if you've read the Gospel of Luke. Because Luke introduces John the Baptist to us in Luke chapter 3, I think it is. And he says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. I love the way that Luke does it because it's real. That's real history. Those are real names that nobody ever debates that those names are associated with Rome. This is how things were done. This isn't a fairy tale that we're talking about. We're talking about real life. We're talking about real history here. And so we understand at this point in history, Rome, Rome is Rome. Rome is the known world. Israel is a client state of Rome. They, have, they don't have their autonomy. Back to the good old days of King David, those are long gone. You don't have freedom. You don't have autonomy. You don't have your own government. You can keep, you can keep your religion, but only as it is related to Rome. Only as far and as much as Rome will let you do it. So Rome imposed heavy taxes. Matter of fact, we know that Herod imposed heavy taxes on the Israelites, on the Jews at that time. And those taxes actually went to fund Herod's temple. It was actually Solomon's temple that had been rebuilt. This was the third rebuilding of the temple, but it was called Herod's temple. It was majestic. It was huge. It was enormous. It was beautiful, but it was on the backs of the Israelites. It was on the backs of the Jews who had to pay heavy, heavy taxes. Not only did those taxes go to this beautiful temple to try and build goodwill between Herod and the Jews, but Herod took that tax money and he built imperial temples. For all of the soldiers of Rome. So the soldiers of Rome would have these fortresses and they would have their own temple with pagan shrines where they could worship Caesar. They could worship their gods, little g, gods. But that was important to Rome. And it was on the backs of the Jewish people. And so you can imagine the frustration of the Jewish people as Jesus steps into this. It gets worse, though, because if you remember, there's a story in Luke chapter 20 that Luke tells of the religious leaders trying to, trying to trick Jesus. And they come to him. Jesus didn't have a real good working relationship with the religious leaders. And that's because the religious leaders were part of the aristocracy. The religious leaders actually got along with Rome. Rome said, hey, we'll let you keep your religious system as long as you keep us happy. So the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you've heard those throughout the Gospels. These are the guys that said, okay... We'll keep Rome happy. These were the rich guys. These were the ruling aristocracy. And then underneath the rich guys, the ruling aristocracy, which was the religious leaders who had to tell everybody else what to do, you had, these, you had the sellouts. You had the people that, okay, I'll go along to get along. I'll compromise. I'll go along to get along. These were the tax collectors. Everybody else, all throughout the whole kingdom or all throughout the whole land of Israel, they were poor. And destitute. Why? Because they were taxed to death. Matter of fact, uh, 
Kurt Willems um, on TheologyCurator.com, he puts it this way. He says, Many vi village families fell into debt and were faced with the loss of family inheritance and land. Precisely the deteriorating conditions Jesus addressed. Impoverishment, hunger, and debt. And that's what Jesus comes into. So the religious leaders aren't real fond of Jesus because he's upsetting their establishment. He's upsetting, he's threatening their power. Even though he never threatened them, they could see there's something different about this guy. The crowds are gonna are following him. He has a lot of power, and he's not using it yet, but he will. And they're trying to trap him. They're trying to trick him. And so in Luke chapter 20, they ask him, they say, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no parity, partiality, but truly teach the way of God, totally buttering him up. And Jesus sees right through it. But they ask him, they say, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived, Jesus perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, he said, Show me a denarius. Show me a coin whose likeness and inscription is on it. When they, and they bring him out a coin. They bring him the, the Roman denarius. And the denarius is a regular coin. It has two sides. On one side is an image of a Roman goddess. So one of their little g gods, Roman goddess. You flip it over, there's the image of Caesar. And translated into e English, it says Caesar divine. <laughs> and so whether they like it or not, the, the Jews are forced to break the first two of the Big Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me and have no graven images. And here they're carrying graven images around in their pockets. And so the, the religious leaders, the ruling aristocracy, they come to Jesus and they say, okay, we're going to trick him because there's no right answer to this. If he says that we should pay our taxes to, his, to Caesar, then he's a total sellout and the people are going to see right through him that he's a sellout and he's just like us. But if he tells them, not to pay taxes and not to carry that graven image in their pocket, then we can go to Rome and say he's citing an insurrection. He's telling people not to pay their taxes to Caesar. We got him with this trick question. Jesus says, well, bring me a coin. Should you pay taxes to Caesar? Bring me a coin. Let me see the coin. He said, whose image is on it? And they said, uh, Caesar's? He said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. <laughs> Man, we got him now. Whose image is it? It's Caesar's? If it belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar. But if it belongs to God, give it to God. And what belongs to God? Everything. <laughs> we're a part of it. That's actually a lesson. This is a side lesson to what we've got today. We're in the world, not of the world. We're clear about that. So should you... Should you drink Starbucks coffee? Should you shop at Target? Should you go to Disneyland? All these, all these topics, man, you're in the world, not of the world. I mean, if you want a good cup of coffee, go to Starbucks. <laughs> if you need good socks, go to Target. All right? We, sometimes I think we make too much of a deal out of it. And Jesus, seeing that they're going to make a big deal out of this, hey, give it to Caesar. If it's Caesar, give it to God's if it's God's. It's about how we live our lives. And so... These conditions are what Jesus walked into. The people are poor. They're destitute. They're desperate for a Savior. And now in comes Jesus. They're desperate for hope. They're desperate for change. And they see this guy, Jesus. John puts it this way. In John chapter 6, there's this really cool story about Jesus and how he feeds the 5,000. He's out there on the side of a mountaintop. He's teaching. And it gets late in the evening, kind of like this. And the disciples pull Jesus to the side and say, Hey, dude, you've kind of gone long-winded today. The people are hungry. You better send them down to the village so they can get something to eat. And Jesus is like... You feed them. Like, we can't feed them. He says, well, what do you got? Well, this little boy has five loaves and two fish. Well, bring it to me. 
And Jesus blesses the food, and he breaks it, and everybody gets to eat. And there's 12 baskets left over, and they're like, wow, that was really, really cool. And Jesus sends his disciples across. He says, hey, you guys get in the boat. Go to the other side of the lake. Catch up with you later. Jesus goes up on top of the mountain. The reason he goes up to the mountain is, is explained in John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, the breaking of the loaves and the fish and the feeding of the 5,000, when they saw what he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. We see politics in play right there with Jesus. Because poverty-stricken Israel, desperate for hope, desperate for change, needing autonomy and freedom, they say, this is the guy. <laughs> like, this is the one, man. We've heard about this for years. We've heard the prophecies of old. This is the... I think he's from God. <laughs> Look at the signs and the miracles that he can do. Imagine if we made him our king. He could heal the sick. He could feed the army. Let's take him and make him our king. And Jesus says, no, no, not my time. He goes off into the mountain by himself. John says that later that night, the disciples out rowing their boat. They don't get anywhere. There's a storm. Matthew explains it's a big storm. The disciples are rowing. They don't get anywhere. And Jesus comes walking out on the water. This is the part where Peter freaks out. He's like, hey, if that's you, call me to come out of the boat. Jesus says, do it. Then see, Peter sinks. You have little faith. They get in the boat. They're to the other side. And, uh, and they're in Capernaum. The crowd wakes up in the morning. And they're like, hey, where'd Jesus go? Like, I don't know, man. His disciples were in the boat, but he went up that way. He's not there anymore. Well, let's get in our boats and let's go chase him down. So they go to Capernaum, where they thought the disciples went. They get to Capernaum, and, and there's Jesus. And the crowd's like, hey, how'd you get here? When'd you get here? And Jesus, knowing what they're up to, he says, you're looking for something to eat, aren't you? He says, truly, I tell you, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't you know to work for the, that you're working for food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life is what the Son of Man will give you. And they're like, well, give that to us then. And Jesus, knowing where their heart is, that they want to make him king, I think Jesus has a little bit of fun with them here. Because he starts talking about eating my flesh. I'm from heaven. I'm from God. You've got to eat my flesh. Like, man, this is a hard saying. What is he talking about? Isn't this, they start saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter? Like, he grew up in Nazareth, man. We know, we know this guy. And he's saying, eat our flesh? And Jesus hearing them, he says, oh, no, no, no. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, oh, out of here. This guy's on Fruit Loop. And they desert him. And Jesus turns to the 12 disciples, the 12 he says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter, of all people, Peter pipes up. He says, to whom will we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Talk about a political situation. <laughs> and Jesus, of course, he turns them off by the whole eat my flesh, drink my blood. Here we are 2,000 years this side of the cross. We understand where Jesus was going with that. When he said, eat my flesh, drink my blood... We know that there was the Last Supper when he's breaking bread with those 12 disciples and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood that was poured out. Do this in remembrance of me. So we totally get it and we understand when we read that. We can read it casually and say, oh, I totally get it. But if you were there for the first time ever, it was offensive. Man, we were going to make him king, but now he's a Fruit Loop. 
Jesus never took the bait. You know why? He always had eternity in mind. Because even in that moment when he's talking about breaking, eating flesh, eating, drinking blood, he always had eternity in mind. Because he talked even about the resurrection. And I'll rise at the end. In the end, I will rise. And if you believe in me, you'll rise too. You'll rise to everlasting life. Nobody could understand it, but we understand it because we understand what happened at the cross. We know what happened on Golgotha, that Jesus was crucified, that he was buried, but that he came to life on the third day. And we know that we can place our faith in him and we too can be saved from our sin and have eternal life. So it makes sense to us here in this world, the here and now, we understand that, but we forget the attitude and the perspective that Jesus had, the long-range vision that he had, that he was always living into eternity. He could have so easily stepped into the politics of his day, and he would have been right, and he could have proved that he was right, but he never did that. And so I think that that's kind of our takeaway here. There was a... We, we live in such a politically charged time that we sometimes think that we're alone in this. But if you look all through the history of the United States, it's always been a charged time. Think about our founding fathers way back when we decided to declare independence from, from, uh, from England. Got all these countries going around in my head. When we decided to declare independence, what that must have been like, the discussions that were happening around here, the abolitionist movement against slavery, uh, all through our history, there have been politically charged times. It seems like right now, our charged time, we don't really have... It's not the Vietnam thing. It's not the civil rights movement. We're just angry about everything. But the way that we handle conflict really, really, really matters. So I want to point out that those, those followers of Jesus, they didn't get the big picture in that moment. But those followers of Jesus that said, you alone have the words of eternal life, they stuck with him. Even though they didn't understand him, they stuck with him. Those 12 followers, one of them ended up betraying him, right? Judas betrayed him, so there's 11 left. Of those 11, one of them was a tax collector. One of them was the sellout. One of them, that tax collector, he was the go-along-to-get-along guy. He was the guy that said, hey, I like big government. I like heavy taxes. I like what the government can do with our tax money. I'll be a part of it. We'll set Matthew way over here on the left. You know who another one of his disciples was? Way over here on the right? His name was Simon. You know what his whole name was? Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot is? It's some, that, that's the guy that wears camouflage all the time. Owns a hundred guns. Has a can't hunting shack in the woods. He's always got his tinfoil hat on. That's the zealot. Like They're always ready to take up arms against Rome. Like, man, we hate this. We are ready to go to war right now. And then you got Matthew over here like, we're ready for taxes, man. (laughs) Talk about left wing and right wing. And you know what Jesus did? He called them both to be his follower. You know what Jesus does today? He calls Republicans and Democrats to be his follower. Those two guys, Matthew and Simon, they didn't stay left wing and right wing. You know what we call them today? disciples what do people call you what do people call me what an honor it would be if they said there's Chuck a disciple of Jesus Christ these guys didn't stay silent I mean the church the church spread once once Jesus raised from the dead you got to read the history of the beginnings of the church the New Testament church read through Acts and see how it spread Rome fell 
Rome came and it went. 473 AD, Rome fell. Rome is no more. What's happened with Christianity? It continues to spread. It continues to grow. It continues to share hope to people that are desperate and needing hope. The hope that's only found in Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying today is not a message of stay out of politics as a Christian. No, you, we, need to, we need to confront untruths in our culture. We need to confront our culture. We need to be, we need to be a force for good in our culture. Just like we have always done. The abolitionist movement is something that Christians can be proud of. It was, it was uh, so heavily influenced by Christianity to get rid of slavery in the United States. And it's the unsung hero. It's the unsung song of our history. The Christians do make a difference. But the way that we do it matters. Totally, totally matters. Let me, let me put it to you this way. May 2nd, 2011 was the day that, that SEAL Team 6 got Bin Laden. That's the day that we got our number one enemy. We were all happy about that. I was thrilled about that. I'm a, I'm a former military guy. I was so proud of our armed forces. And I got, on, uh, I got on Facebook, and I made a post the next day because the news was all about Osama bin Laden. Osama, Osama. I was like, man, I've never heard of this Osama bin Laden. It's always been Osama bin Laden. And so I made a post. I said, so when... So when did we start calling him Usama? Was it when Obama decided he wasn't a Muslim? And I thought it was a pretty tricky play on words because Osama and Obama are just one letter apart. And, you know, we got this whole Muslim in the White House, you know, according to my political leanings. And so I thought I was pretty clever. All my friends thought that I was pretty clever, too, because I'm getting lots of likes and lots of comments. One of my friends I went to high school with, atheist, very far left, liberal. She saw that post and she came unglued. She's like, "You know better than that. He's a Christian. He said he's a Christian." And I didn't see, I didn't see her response right away. You know how Facebook. You're not. I mean, hopefully you're not on there 24 seven. So people will make a comment. Somebody else will see it. And they can comment. And they can comment. By the time I got back to it, man, it was completely out of control. I had a friend get on there and say, "You know, he's not a Christian because the Bible tells us that ye shall know them by their fruits." Just slapped her so far upside the head with the Bible. I got on there and I was like, oh my goodness. I have pushed her away from Christ. I want to pull people towards Christ, but I pushed her away. So I deleted my whole post. I contacted her in a a private email. I said, I'm so sorry. You bring up a really good point. I probably shouldn't have phrased it that way. I probably shouldn't have put it out there. I'm sorry. She's like, oh, we're cool. I understand. I said, no, no, let's go to lunch. So next time I was in New York, I think it was for a race, the Unadilla race or something. I took her to lunch and we sat down <laughs> as a left and a right wing person. We sat down, we had lunch and we had a, we had a civil discussion about our differences. Hey, we grew up together. We actually were in the same youth group together. Why do you believe the way that you believe now? And I heard some really cool things that opened my eyes to the way that I conduct ministry nowadays. Heard some really cool things that opened up my heart to say, you know what? The way that I address politics is either going to pull people towards Jesus or going to push them away. You see, the way that we conduct ourselves is going to do is going to tell people one of two things. Jesus loves you or Jesus hates you. Jesus loves us. He loves them, he loves you, he loves me, he loves us so much 
that he died in my place and he died in their place. He is the hope of the world. The way that we conduct ourselves, make sure that we're drawing people towards Jesus. I'm going to close with it this way. This is what Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians to the church in Philippi. He said, have this same mindset that Jesus had, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, there is a day coming when God will exalt him, the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you drawn people towards him or away? God, thank you so much. Just for the experiences that I've had in life, and thanks for giving me an opportunity to share. And I pray that, uh, I pray that my heart will be open and vulnerable, that people can see that I really do care. I care so much about drawing people to Jesus. I want to confront untruths and injustices in our society, but Lord, the way I do it, I really, really, really want to pull people towards you, and I want this group of people right here, assembled tonight here at St. Clairsville, Ohio, I want them to pull people towards you, and I want to change the landscape of eternity for your name, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for hanging out with me tonight. Uh, If you need anything, I'll be here. Otherwise, have a great race tomorrow, and we'll see you at Ironman.